Well, grab your Biblias, and we are in Exodus 13. And um, next week we'll be in, in chapter 14. So I, I did have the horse and rider cast into the sea song. We got to practice that, so we're ready for it next week because we'll be singing scripture and we'll know the song. And um, so Exodus 13, we're picking up in verse 8 tonight. We didn't get as quite as far as I planned on originally. But uh, we're looking at the steps after leaving bondage, after they left Egypt. It wasn't just, okay, you're free out of Egypt. Now go into all the world and be fruitful and multiply and live and let live. No, he's, as soon as they were leaving, they had a plan. And that first step we saw was to put the Lord first in everything. We're going to revisit that tonight. And then also, the second step that we looked at last week was to um, be sanctified, entirely sanctified unto God, to live that sanctified life. And he does this by talking once again about no leaven. You see now in chapter 12, he talked about unleavened bread, the feast of it. He did. But remember, they fell. They, they did have leaven in the dough. They weren't supposed to have leaven in the dough. They were to have unleavened bread and they were to, in, in the course of time, have that baked and eat that during the seven days. But they didn't have any bread to eat during those seven days because there was dough still in the bread. So he comes back and revisits this. He doesn't scold them or, or point out to them that they failed. He just says, okay, let me say it again with a little more detail. And we saw this in, in verse seven of last week where he said seven days, <laughs> unleavened bread, no leaven. You, won't, you can't even see the leaven. <laughs> you can't, it, it can't be seen among you. And, and it shouldn't be anywhere at all in your house or in your dwelling, in your tent or tabernacle or wherever you're at. There should be no leaven to be found. That I don't think they got from the time before when they said no leaven. I think it was just... Um, I'm not sure what they thought because they had the leaven in the dough still, uh, even though they didn't need it, which was great. He, they, they didn't keep the feast as God had thought clearly he had said, but he explained it further. Now, the third step we're looking at tonight is keeping it daily in front of your face, keeping it daily right in front of you. And he does this by in verse 8, Exodus chapter 13, verse 8, and you shall tell your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So why are we doing this? So when you're doing it and it looks a little bit odd, it looks a little bit off, it's not your typical thing that you see, it's definitely something new that we've never done in the past that you will have a reason to tell your son. It'll, it'll cause inquisitiveness in your child. And then with that inquisitive, you're to recount the story of what's happened here. As we talked about before, this is the picture that Israel carried with them up to this very day. And it is such a picture of the Messiah and Christ and in his death and in his resurrection. All a picture of that. 
Jesus said, I am the door, <laughs> right? They put the blood on the top of the door and then the two sides of the door, making a cross as they did it. I'm the door. Jesus is the, the cross. Jesus' blood that was shed, the innocent lamb of God. So they knew this story inside out. Now in verse 9, So it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So let's take a note there in verse 9. On your hand, between your eyes, and it shall not leave your mouth. Now he says something interesting in verse 10. You shall therefore keep this ordinance, and it's a season in its season from year to year. So it sounds like verse 9, he's saying this hand thing, this eye thing, this mouth thing is something that's done in this Feast of Unleavened Bread Passover time and, and to make keep it in this season. Now, there's a reason I'm saying that in just a minute. How the Jews actually applied it is very different. Now, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites that he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you. So these are the things you're going to be doing and you're going to make sure once you're in the promised land, you, can, you have to continue to do it. We know as old Christians that it wasn't hard walking as a Christian the first few months, was it? It wasn't hard walking as a, a Christian for those first couple of years when you're on fire for the Lord. And it doesn't take much to revive your spirit as a new believer. It didn't take much for us in the Jesus movement that lasted for a few decades. New songs constantly and, and, and new bands coming out and evangelism happening. And we, we were just so excited about Jesus. And then, you know, all the left behind movies coming out. There was just one thing. On, it was just a continual uh, barrage over three decades for us in the Calvary movement. That was so easy to be on fire. But we know as, as older Christians, it's, it's harder, isn't it? to keep things going in the promised land. You know, we're doing better spiritually, no more than we've ever known, but to keep doing the simple, basic, uh, like Brian Broderson's back to basics. That's it. It's all there is in Christianity. Christianity never goes beyond the basics. You just do the basics over and over and over again, and you mature. The basics don't change, but you grow, you mature. So when you read whatever book, the book of Exodus, for the hundredth time in your life, you're seeing things, and God's Holy Spirit speaking to you things you never saw before. And it's like, spiritually, it's, it's brand new. God's just revealing so many things. And you go, why didn't that happen before? Because you weren't in the season. You weren't in the place. Boy, we, we, we hear that happening a lot, don't we? Paul, in the book of Hebrews and also in the book of Corinthians, he says to both of them, I, would, I really came hoping to speak to you as mature Christians, but I couldn't. Even though you've been years in the Lord, I had to talk to you as if you were infants. And I had to give you the milk rather than the meat. We can get to that place, can't we? Spiritually, 
where we stop growing and start going backwards. So in the land, once you're there, it's not like, okay, we're out of Egypt. Okay, yeah, we need to stay together because we need to get to the promised land. And once you get to the promised land, blah, you know, you're, you're, you're no longer keeping the form. You know, um, Francis Schaeffer, you know, talked about this a lot, was the, the concept out of, of Romans 8 into this doctrine in which we were poured. You know, we often read that as saying the doctrine is poured into us, but no, we are made into this new image. We're a new mold of clay and we're dumped into the form of Jesus. And if, if you have, if you're pouring concrete and you have three boards up on three sides of that, that concrete square, what's going to happen when you pour the concrete? You're going to get nothing, right? You're going to get a big blob. But when you put that four side on, if you've done concrete, you know that you're posting that thing like crazy. And if it's your first time doing concrete, you're like going, is this really necessary? Man, you're putting these giant rods and man, the force of that cement pushing against all four sides is incredibly great until it hardens. And, and Schaefer talks about how to have a form plus the force to keep that form equals freedom. That's what we're trying to get. So the force, in this case, the form, and what is the form, and what is the force to keep that form that would equal freedom? So you look at the Mormons, for example. They have a form. Pretty, they know what you're going to look like, right? You're going to have that Mormon haircut, the Mormon dress code, the Mormon bicycle, the Mormon mission trip, the, you know, all the Mormon things. And of course, they say that the force is to, you're going to have to speak to the Mormon church. And if you don't do things right, we're going to bring you in and talk to you and maybe even kick you out. We're going to scold you and maybe even kick you out of the Mormon church. But they swear that, that their force, they're putting to keep that form equals freedom. But it doesn't, does it? It's actually binding them up worse than they've ever been bound. All cults do that. Oops, sorry about that. You want to look at that up on your phone, hen? And um, so Jehovah Witnesses or the Muslim religion or Catholics, every time... The force, it's this organization. The Catholic Church's organization is going to scare you, guilt trip you in to, to cause you to be an auth, a big building and the giant organization and, and, and the years of traditions. And, and this is going to be the intimidation factor to force you into this form, which isn't much. You know, show up on a Sundays and do a confessional and uh, be ready to have the last rites when you die. And of course, they, all the organizations want your money. You got to give that. Then it's supposed to equal freedom, but it doesn't. Now, you say, oh, well, it's the Christian church. Let me ask you, do all Christian churches bring that freedom? I grew up in a church that very much, they're like, man, it did not take much to lose your salvation in my thinking, the way they taught I mean, if, you know, every, every Sunday. So if, you know, you lusted in your heart, you better get saved again, you know. 
if you were lied, you know, you, you, this week, then you, you need to, you're probably not saved. And I would get resaved every single Sunday. And there's, a, of course, a lot of other types of Christian churches that, you know, tell you they're prophets or they're apostles or they're getting these revelations from God to tell you this is what you must do um, to be right with the organization. They typically, all of them, it's right with the organization means you're right with God, and that's their force. Their force is... If you're not right with the organization, you're not right with God. So you better be right with the organization and your behavior or not giving or not coming to church enough or whatever it is, you're, 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 we're questioning you. This is the force to get you to maintain that form if you want freedom. But it doesn't equal freedom. And so Schaefer, interesting enough, points out that any human force trying to create and keep that form will bring you into bondage. The only force is God's grace to us. I mean, even if I'm telling you, oh, it's fine that you sin, don't worry about it. You confessed it, don't worry about it. It doesn't set you free. Because, <laughs> Brian, you're not God. <laughs> You're not the one judging me. If you were the one judging me on the day of judgment, then that would matter to me. But the fact is, is I have to know from God that I'm forgiven. You see? And so it's being strong in the grace, growing in the grace, having the knowledge of the grace. And, and you're looking to God and you're seeing his grace upon grace flowing your life. And now this love in your heart, you freely received and his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Oh, what's God required of me but to do justly, to love mercy, walk humbly with my God. Okay, I just want to serve God because I want to serve God. <laughs> I want to love God because I just, I love him. And the reason I love him is because he's loved me so much. I, I just cannot seem to love him even a small degree of how much he's loving on me every second of every day. That alone brings freedom. And that's why we, we have to keep true Christianity and the true doctrine. But so many churches are, yeah, we're saved by grace and your church attendance. We're saved by grace and your church attendance and praying an hour a day and coming to midweek service and uh, don't forget the tithing part. And they don't say it that way, but boy, they sure seem to imply that salvation by grace alone didn't really cover it because we're looking at your actions and your form isn't the form that you should have in our opinion. And yeah, we want the form. The form is Jesus, right? And, and religious people did not like Jesus. <laughs> they did not like Jesus. He is, they, they were mad at him constantly for not being religious not wearing religious clothes, not respecting the religious leaders, not, not doing what the religious leaders were telling him he had to do according to their traditions, not according to scripture. And eventually they were the ones that drove uh, Jesus to be crucified. So in the same way, you know, here, here's a form. You're gonna do these things this is in the Old Testament. This is the law, okay? So their form isn't going to bring freedom, is it? 
Their form, according to Romans and Galatians, was to show them that they were sinners. That no matter how small the law was, that we can't continue to do it. If it's going to make us righteous, we're in trouble. And so he, he says season to season, and then when you're in the promised land, you need to continue this. Now, the way the Jews in time, okay, understand there was one form of Judaism up to the Babylonian captivity. And then the seven years of Bab- 70 years of Babylonian captivity, when they came back with Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, the religious people took it over and created this new Judaism, which we know in the New Testament is Phariseeism, the Sadducees, and eventually the Sanhedrin. And all of that came between the coming back into Babylon. And, and what did, how did Jesus look at that new Jewish system? They were a cult. Jesus is saying, this Jewish religion you've formed that you're telling everybody they got to follow, it's not in the scripture. It's in your tradition. And, and you guys are, are following Satan. This religion you've evolved out of using the Bible is demonic. And you hate me because Satan hates me and Satan's your father. And, 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 and he just let them know that this thing is bankrupt whether it was the Pharisees or Sadducees or whatever it was. So you got to realize that it, it, it evolved differently and, and, and what it looked like, we don't, we don't know completely, but we do know uh, what it looked like after that Babylonian period. And, and what they did is they took these boxes, and of course they swore they did it all the way back to the time of Moses. And have you, have you seen this uh, in Israel or uh, where they, they get these boxes and, and depending on your brand of Judaism, they all have a different brand. So <clears throat> some of them have small boxes, some have huge boxes, <clears throat> and then some have leather straps where they whop it around a couple of times. Then others, they wrap it around and they're wrapping it. It looks like they're just randomly wrapping it around. You know they're not. They're counting. It's very specific. Their group is telling them, yeah, you got to have a box this size. These are the scriptures now that have to be in the box. And that varies also. Typically, it is just uh, the passage that is, we're going to see out of Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read it in just a minute. And then the same thing with another big box between their, your forehead. <laughs> and again, they wrap it around you. Uh, and you have this box with a leather strap around uh, right here between your eyes and another one on your hand. And uh, they're called phylacteries. And this is what they believed that the scripture was saying. And when you look at it, it's like, mm, I don't know how you got that. <laughs> I don't know how you got that from this. Now, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 4 through 9, he talks about it again. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There in chapter 6, verse 4 of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them uh, when you sit down in your house and when you walk along the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They're saying phylacteries. And they shall be as frontals between your eyes. 
and you shall write them now on the doorpost of your house, which later would be called the mezuzah, and on your gates. So then this is now another addition. So he's saying, okay, yeah, the phylacteries there, but also on your houses. So the Jews basically interpreted this down the road. Again, you have this Deuteronomy 6 passage called the Shema, where it says you're going to tell them to your children when they sit down, when they rise up, when they walk along the way. Uh, and then also the Lord our God is one. This is the Shema. The Lord our God is one. And they put it into the little boxes of the mezuzah and they say everywhere there's a, a door. And again, it depends on your brand. Some of them say that means a gate. <laughs> so some guys, you have them on the gates. Some say it's just your front door. Some say it's every door in the house. So a lot of Jews now, they just do it safe. They put them on their gates. They put them on every single door in their house. You'll see a mezuzah on every, and, and as they walk by, they will tap it or sometimes kiss their hand and tap it as they're going inside every door, which, which is not a bad idea, you know. Uh, with our kids, I know for years, we used to put scriptures not only on the refrigerator, but it depends if they're having a hard time. We'd put them on the, the hallway. We'd put them on the doors. We'd put them above the doors. And we had scriptures all over the place. Um, and I think it was very effective. I really do. But here he is saying, as we saw back in verse 9, the whole point of this, that the word would be in your mouth, right? In Deuteronomy 11, he talks about this more. And uh, again, um, he says pretty much the, the same thing. And uh, talks about there in verse 20, on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, as well. So it really depends on, on how they interpret it. Now, when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees on this, he didn't have anything good to say about it. He said in Matthew 23, 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. This is going to be something we'll talk about later where you have a thread at the bottom of every hole of your garment on your sleeves and on the bottom you have um, tassels. We'll talk about that at a later time. But he was just saying, you're doing it to, to be seen by men as, oh, I'm so zealous. I'm so passionate. I'm so righteously wanting to do God's will no matter what. But it was all an outward show. It wasn't something truly in the heart. Now, Again, I think this also is very much connected to why the mark 666 is on the forehead or the back of the hand. When you look at Satan, he's always trying to mimic Christ, but it's a dark side. It's always the demonic thing. So I think when the Antichrist comes, he's going to try to make it appear as he's virgin birth. He's going to try to make it appear that he has all power. He, he's going he's gonna to try all of, you know, he's going to have his own John the Baptist, so to speak, in the, in the beast. He's going to mimic everything. And one of the things is his people are also going to bind his word on the back of their hand or their forehead. And of course, his force is you won't be able to survive if you don't because you can't buy or sell. But it's interesting 
that the government doesn't grab you and hold you down and put somebody puts a foot on your head and they get this machine and on the back of your hand. There, now you're marked like a cattle. It's not the case, is it? Nobody, nobody gets a mark that doesn't, isn't willing to get the mark. Isn't that interesting? Because it wouldn't take much force to put a, a, a tattoo on somebody's head or hand. But it, it's all about your willingness. They, he will not force you, even the Antichrist with all this power and all the military force, he, he won't physically force you. You're not going to wake up in the morning and had a horrible dream. And you, know, you look in the mirror and you got this thing on your forehead. It's something you're willingly submitting to. And it's an act of worship to the Antichrist when you have this thing on the back of your hand or your forehead, or probably both uh, in some cases. But he says in Revelation 13, 16, he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. So we know that if they don't do this, eventually um, they won't be able to, to buy or sell or and they'll be chased down and, and eventually beheaded if they're not willingly taking it. But I think the point here was that whatever this is on the back of the hand or on the forehead, and it seems, one, it was seasonal, according to the following verse. It was something that, that is happening within the course of the year. But the, the whole point of it was that you would never let the word of God depart from your mouth. That was the whole point of it. And of course, as we see this um, elaborated on, it's, it's the chewing of the gut, cut of a cow, right? In Psalms 1, David says, meditate. That's the, the, the word that, yes, it means meditate as we think it does, but it also is the chewing of the cud uh, of a cow. You know, the other way that word is used in the Hebrew is the purring of a lion or of a cat. Have you ever had that when something speaks to you and you're like, oh, mm, mm, that's so true. Mm, purring. Mm -hmm. It's something that, that, that you caught in your head, but it went into your heart. And when that truth went into your heart, you sort of purred. Mm, mm, it's in my heart. What you just said, it's in my heart, not just in my head. It, it, it translated went the 18 inches, and that's going to change my life, that word, or heal me, or comfort me. It's power in me. So Psalms 1, we know that well, don't we? In verse 2 and 3, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates, again, that Hebrew word, day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Boy, I'll tell you, that's sort of my dream house, is to live on a river. My older sister lived on a river, and it's very soothing. Just the river going by, and you're sitting there. You know, if you're looking at a lake, that's also nice, but there's something about the moving. You know, I'm looking at a water that we haven't seen here before. It's, it's going, and new water's coming. And, you know, a new branch floats by or a new boat goes by. It's, it's something very healing. And, 
And, and he's saying here, if you're meditating day and night, one, it's when you're conscious, when you're not conscious, when you're sleeping or when you're thinking about it or when you're not directly thinking about it. It's something that is stirring in your heart and in your mind. And it's, it's going to be like you're living on the river, side of a river. And you're tapped into that river system. It's the thing that's filling you. And, and it says here it brings forth fruit in its season. That's great. It doesn't ever wither. That's amazing. A tree that, that bears fruit regularly. And whatever he does shall prosper. The grand poobah of all blessings. If you think about it, there is no greater blessing than that. You can't make one up. Think about it. Can you make a bigger blessing than everything you do will prosper? Try to outdo that. You can't. And how do, what does he connect that greatest blessing to? Praying? Witnessing? Going to church? No, he connects it to the life where the word of God never departs from the mouth. Isn't that right? And so again, whatever these phylacteries were to do, whatever the mezuzah was to do, it was the ultimate re result was to keep the word of God in your mouth. And of course, Joshua 1, it's the same thing, right? Be strong, good courage. Give these people their inheritance. Be strong and take them in there. I say it several times. Don't to the right, don't turn to the left hand. But the book of the law shall de not depart from your mouth. That's the key. You shall meditate, there it is again, day and night to observe to do according to all that's written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. You wonder, did David, was David inspired by Joshua 1, do you think? <laughs> I think he was, wasn't he? Of course, uh, by the Holy Spirit, he wrote Psalm 1, and I, I think it was much, much better even, poetically. But here, they, they realize that at this time, Moses has just died, and, and Joshua's on the scene, and all of these leaders, these elders, it's clear to them, isn't it? To this point, I mean, these guys, Lot has not very much been clear. <laughs> but these are all the children. The parents have died off, and the children <laughs> weren't very grounded. They still had their idols. They had to get rid of Joshua. But either way, they understand now. These guys that are, were 20 years old and under, that are now 60 and under, are telling Joshua, hey, you're, you're much older than us. They were, Joshua's, uh, you know, younger than, than Moses, but probably substantially older than these young kids that had, their parents had died in the wilderness, right? So they're trying to tell this guy who's 20, 30, 40 years older than them, don't be a wimp. Be strong. You know that if God's word is in your mouth, and don't turn to the right or left, do what it says, and if it doesn't depart from your mouth, you will prosper in all that you do. You will have good success. But again, have I not commanded you? <laughs> be strong and a good courage. Don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. The Lord God is with you wherever you go. And of course, Jesus, in fighting Satan, quotes out of Deuteronomy and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That rhema word. It's not the logos. Okay? Remember the Pharisees had the scriptures memorized. And Jesus said, you study the scriptures, he says to the Pharisees. 
Because you think in studying it, you have life. But yet these are the very scriptures that speak of me and you hate me. Who else knows the scriptures probably better than anybody here? Satan, right? I mean, he knew every scripture to throw right back at Jesus. They were playing this Bible, uh, you know, sword fight. He would throw a scripture at Jesus and Jesus would throw another scripture back at him. But Satan knows, and, but yet can, can the word of God be in him? Can the word of God be in his mouth? Can Satan have the word of God in his mind and go into his heart? No, he can't. And Jesus is saying that here. It's not memorize it, you know, it isn't go study it in the seminaries. Go study it like the Pharisees do. Meditate on it so it gets into your heart. That is the whole point of the exercise. Well, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 12 through 16 here now, he says, second, he says the next step here, and I'm going to repeat, just like I did repeat it with unleavened bread, I'm going to repeat now what I said in verse 1 and 2 about the firstborn and, and giving of the firstborn. I'm going to, I don't think you got this. So I'm going to repeat it and I'm going to add to it to help you understand what this means. And so he says that you shall be set apart. That Hebrew word, abar, is the same word for Passover. It's the same word for pass through. Interesting. Now with the Passover or to pass through, the implications is it's burning with fire. It's being given as a sacrifice. In the Passover, there was blood, right? They killed it. There was fire, they burned it, they, they, they cooked it to eat, but then the rest of it was burnt in fire, right? That's the idea here with this word abar. So when he talks about being set apart, it's being burnt, giving, I, I like again Romans 12, to give ourselves as a living, holy sacrifice. You know, to, to set apart, to be burned as a sacrifice unto God. You, you are being, you know, th this is what we're going to see here in, in the giving. It's, it's, if it was a child, a human child or something, other things, that if you couldn't give it to God, then it had to be killed, okay? So like a donkey, we're going to find out. Um, you can't give it. You've got to break its neck. So the idea of something being set apart to God, it will have no use to man, it's 100% dedicated to the Lord, no longer to be in your hands. Even if it seems like a big waste to you. Remember Judas said, this is a big waste. Do you remember that? You know what son of perdition means? Perdition, waste. He's saying, this woman is wasting. And Jesus uses that word back on Judas who said that said, you're the son of waste. Wherever the gospel spoken, yes, this was a great sacrifice, but she, sac she was anointing my body before the burial. But that wasn't a waste. That alabaster flask, very costly oil, was not a waste. It was 100% dedicated unto the Lord and splurged on the Lord. 
but not used for anybody else but the Lord. This is the concept. And so he's saying that you guys are to be set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that every firstborn that comes from the animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. So if you say, man, I've got a lot of donkeys, but not that many lambs this year. I don't want to give up a lamb. Then then break the donkey's neck. But typically you keep the donkey alive and you sacrifice a lamb. But if you don't want to do that, you're not going to use the donkey then. Then you got to break his neck. Well, I'm not going to give it as a sacrifice to God. That's a big waste to break his neck and, and, and not used for anything. But you got to understand the point of being set apart, sanctified to God and his use only. We're going to see later the, the, the priest's tools. Nobody was to use those tools, right? Except the priests. It's the same idea. And he goes on at the end of verse 13, and all that the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be that your sons ask in time to come, saying, what is this that you will say to him, by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So again, why are we doing this? Provoking the question in your sons. And you see how important the next generation is to God? And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both of the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord of all males that open the womb, and all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And then he says this in verse 16, interesting. It shall be as a sign on your hand and on your frontlets between your eyes For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So now he ties the idea of phylacteries to what he talked about in verse 1 and 2. The the setting apart of the first unto God as a sacrificial giving unto him. So again, when I go back to chapter 13, verse 9, when he says you need to do these things in their season, it appears that this is a point in time every year when they're giving their tithes, They're giving their various offerings during the festival times that they were to also, at that time, put these scriptures um, on them. And again, you know, it's like maybe to write the scripture on on a papyrus or on some leather garment uh, and then to tie it onto your hands and everybody's carrying, you know, they got this wrap on their hand or they got a bandana on. And on the bandana is the scripture. I can see that more than the the boxes, the phylacteries, and so forth. Again, how they came up with that, I I do not know. It's not bad. It's just not what the Bible says specifically. It's something that tradition made it up. And so, again, just like he said in verse 1 and 2 of Exodus, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. And now he he makes it clear. Guys, you say, oh, the the donkeys don't apply. They're just, it's a donkey. God could care less about my donkey. No, right down to your donkey. (laughs) 
it is also just as holy as the lamb. I can sacrifice a donkey? Of course you can. It's an unclean animal. But you can, you can do a lamb in its place. Well, I don't have that many sheep. And then kill the donkey. You can't use it, though. It can't be used by you. It can no longer be used by man because it's God's. This is a pretty radical concept. Imagine if you're just coming out of Egypt and you're saying, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You, you, you didn't really have any knowledge at all. You've observed him over these last year, less, more. We don't know how long the plagues lasted. And now we're, we're getting ready to, to head further out of Egypt. They're just barely out of Egypt right now. We're going to see in chapter 14, they're going to cross the, the Red Sea, right? But they're just barely out and, and, and they're having these Bible studies. Man, I mean, Egypt's just right over there. I mean, I could get there in 10-minute walk. But no, you, you, you need to, we need to have these Bible studies. So God, God wants my donkey? Stinking donkey? God wants a donkey? Yes, God wants your donkey. <laughs> and, and, and the way you give it to him is this way. Yeah, it's an unclean animal. Uh, and also, you're not going to kill humans. Uh, you know, but it, again, this is all a part of it. Now, Numbers, he adds to this. In verse 15 and 16 of Numbers 18, everything that first opens a womb of flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man, you shall surely redeem. The firstborn of unclean animals, you shall redeem. Those redeemed of the devoted things, you shall redeem with one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So again, um, when, when, when the child is, is around a month old or less, that's when you bring this uh, silver into the temple. You guys might remember this in, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was a baby and Mary and Joseph go in and Simeon prophesies. And Peter mentions this. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, they, they had all kinds, these Hebrews had all kinds of respect for the Old Testament and for, if you would, the God of the Old Testament. But Jesus, he's just a carpenter from Nazareth, you know? He's this guy that we used to sit around a fire and ate fish with and, and, and hung out with and, and you know, and, and so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to picture this lowly carpenter from Nazareth as somebody that's, you know, high and lifted up and, and is this king of kings and lord of lords. I, we never saw him like that on earth. Even after his resurrection, he looked like a regular guy. <laughs> and then he ascended up to heaven. He still looked like a regular human guy. And, and Peter's having to come back saying, no, you, you guys are messing up here. And he says in, in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So one sacrifice has been given now for all times. Okay? And so the first law, it says in Hebrews, was given, and now it's dead. 
Colossians 2 says the law of the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which is the whole Old Testament, has been nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. So all of the laws of new moons and Sabbaths and feasts are no longer for us. They all were a shadow of the things to come. And the substance is all in Christ. Christ is the lamb. Christ is the sacrifice. And then again, he says, don't forget these things by putting a sign on the back of your hand or your frontlets. In Exodus 34, we're going to see this again in a few chapters. 19 and 20, it says, all that open the womb are mine. Every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. So by chapter 34, it sounds like they weren't doing it. But the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Proverbs 3, don't be wise in your own eyes, verse 7 says. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. What does he mean by that? Verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruit of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be into your bosom. For the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And of course in Malachi, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with the curse. You are robbed, even the whole nation. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. There may be food in my house. And try me now. Test me, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven, pour out... Uh, for you such blessing, there will not be room enough for you to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations, or the peoples, who will call you blessed, for you will be delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So again, these are the things that, that God is saying, don't forget. Giving of the firstborn right down to things that seem not very spiritual, like a donkey. <laughs> not, very, not very worshipful, like a donkey. But yeah, it's all, it's all to the Lord. And of course, it was all, one, the law that they couldn't keep, that condemned them. But two, it, it was the spirit of receiving Jesus, Right? It was the spirit of worshiping Jesus. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if you give all your goods to the poor but have not love, it profits you nothing, right? Paul says, don't give grudgingly or of necessity, but with a cheerful giver. As a cheerful, if we can't give it cheerfully, he says, keep it. It's, it's, it's about your heart. It's about what happens to you in the process of, of worshiping God. 